Thanks for tuning in to the Voyage Church Podcast. Our desire is that today's message will be significant for all of us on the voyage of becoming. wasn't originally in the plans, but we pulled into town, and um, the way the Lord's been doing it with me is I can't sermon prep. I can have a general idea of what he wants me to speak, but Saturday night, he switches it up on me every time. I love it, and I hate it. It's Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm curious, um, who in the room would say Jesus is Lord? Who in the room would say, I am a disciple of Jesus? Okay. I don't know if you realize it or not, because we're we're a little bit removed from the first century ancient Near East world, but the idea, the relationship between rabbi and disciple was the idea that the rabbi would, would literally make clones of themselves and the disciples, so that way when the rabbi died... The disciple would think like the rabbi, make decisions like the rabbi, live like the rabbi, and carry on the rabbi's teachings long after the rabbi had died. And so this is what Paul is saying here is have this way of thinking in yourselves because this was the way your rabbi thought, all right? So verse 6, Christ, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in, a, in, in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's what I want you to get, because it's going to kind of lay the foundational framework for where we're going, is that we live in a day and age, and we are submerged in a society that has groomed us from infancy to climb the ladder of life. In our career fields, in our achievements of various kinds, we are constantly in a pursuit to climb higher, achieve a better way of living, achieve a comfortable, more comfortable lifestyle, a more convenient lifestyle. We're constantly climbing up, but what I want you to reckon with is our God and our King who displayed for us that it's actually better to climb down the ladder than to spend a life climbing up a ladder. We have God sitting at the highest rung of the ladder who says, no, 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 let me climb down and become a little lower than the angels. Let me become a man. But don't let me just become a man. Let me become a slave, the lowest of men. But don't let me just become the lowest of men. Let me die for other men. But don't just let me die. Let me die on a cross. Because he who dies on a tree is cursed, as the Old Testament says. So we have this image and this display in Philippians 2 of the The individual, the entity, God himself, who sits at the highest rung of the ladder, thinking it's better than to remain there to actually climb down the ladder so that men can climb up. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. 
God, we need you. We're so desperate for you. God, fill this room with your presence. Lord, my supreme request today is that you would remove me, remove my flesh. God, let me be nothing more than a fleshly vessel from which your Holy Spirit speaks today, directly into the hearts of those sitting in this room. God, would you come in and do what only you can do? Would you glorify the Father? Would you edify your people? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the nature of, the biblical nature of a vision. Does anyone have any sort of vision in their life? Maybe a vision for your children, maybe a vision for your career, maybe a vision, dreams and hopes and things that maybe God has laid on your heart and spoken to your heart. There's a sort of a biblical cycle that a vision will go through and thus as a result, the visionary, the one carrying the vision, you and me. And I want to spend a little bit of time laying the framework and very shallow depth of, of a biblical cycle that we can see a pattern that we may walk through. And then I want to really drill in on one of the seasons of that cycle. But first I need to lay two layers of foundation. First, I need you to understand there's two types of vision. The first type is a carnal vision. Okay, and what I don't want you to assume is that a carnal vision is always in and of itself bad. Carnal vision, oftentimes, betters humanity. Carnal vision, oftentimes, may look like a nonprofit that exists to add value to the lives of the community. Carnal vision is not inherently bad. The, the key indicator, though, of a carnal vision lies deep within the desires of the heart of the visionary. And a carnal vision, when you peel back all the layers and when you peel back all the things that the public sees and that everyone sees, at the heart of the visionary, that vision was birthed from flesh for flesh. A vision, a carnal vision, can oftentimes look like ministry. Have, have you ever heard someone say, here's, here's a, not always, but sometimes a key indicator of a carnal vision. I desire wealth. Oh, for the kingdom. I desire influence, a platform. I desire my business to succeed for the kingdom. Have you ever heard someone talk like that? I, I'm guilty of speaking like that. Oftentimes, not always, this is an always exclusive statement, but a lot of times we, we begin to use language like this. The carnal vision will begin to use language like this. They'll say, I want wealth, or I want influence, or I want to be successful, or honored, honored, and have a reputation among people for the kingdom. And all the while, what we're actually doing is, is using this. We, we actually just desire the wealth. We actually just really desire the influence, or, or the honor, or to be looked at. And we actually just use, oh, for the kingdom to cloak our, our, our language to justify our pursuit for something that's not the kingdom and its righteousness. The key indicator for a carnal vision, what you need to know, is that it lies deep within the desires of the heart of the visionary, the one who carries the vision. It was birthed from flesh, for flesh. Then we have a kingdom vision. And this kingdom vision is birthed from the throne room of God, and it is given to the heart of the visionary when the heart of the visionary has been tethered to the very heart of God. 
Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. He's talking about the, the car, the house, the level of comfortability that you're seeking. Maybe, but I'd wager that what God is actually saying here is that he's going to take all the human desires that you have, and he's going to actually give you new desires, which are his desires for your life. The more you seek him, the more you draw towards him, the more he becomes your one thing. The one thing that you are seeking is God. You don't care about anything else that that comes along with that. You just want God. Delight yourself in the Lord. He's going to change all the desires of your heart. Jeremiah 31, 33 says that he's under this new covenant, which is in Christ. He's actually going to come in and write his law on our hearts. We will be his people. He will be our God. What does it mean? He's going to write his law on our hearts? We become religious, legalistic law keepers now? No, no, no. The law is just a reflection of who God is. What does God desire? What does God care about? These are his values, the law. And they show us how opposite we are as human beings to God, what God values. He's going to write his desires, his character, his nature, his values, the things he longs for. He's going to imprint them on your heart. What does that mean? It means your desires are going to change. The things you seek and the things you run after, the things you listen to, the things you watch, the things you talk about, the the language you use, all of these things You're going to notice desires are changing when you have tethered yourself, your heart, to the heart of God. So a kingdom vision only comes from the throne room. And what you need to know about the kingdom vision is when you pull back all the layers, you see a carnal vision and a kingdom vision to everyone else can look the same. It can look like a church plant, both a carnal vision and a kingdom vision. The difference is a kingdom vision in the heart of the visionary desires one thing to glorify the Father, and to edify the saints. What's crazy is the one carrying a kingdom vision recognizes that God is the CEO of whatever this vision is, and they're just a steward running the plays as they seek the face of God and ask him what to do next. Oftentimes when you're carrying a kingdom vision, there's a lot of blessings and a lot of of amazing things that come along with it, but the the, the visionary that has a kingdom vision within their life doesn't care about any of that. They just want to say, yes, you have my yes. I just want you. I don't care about anything else that I used to care about. I just want to glorify you, whether in life or in death, and edify your people as long as I'm in the earth. That's all one carrying a kingdom vision desires. Now, I can't look upon your life and say whether or not you're carrying a carnal vision or a kingdom vision. Only you can reckon that with God because it lies deep within what you actually desire. Are you willing to be real with what you desire? Are you willing to be real before the God of the universe who knows anyway about what you actually desire in the depths of your heart? God, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Are you willing to say that prayer? So these are the two types of vision. Is that pretty clear? Foundation number two, layer number two I like to lay, is that this vision, and thus the visionary, is going to walk through a couple different seasons, mainly four. The first, you're going to have the season of the mountaintop. This is where you receive the vision. This is where you're up high and God gives you the vision or you can begin to see the furthest distance with the most clarity. You can see where you're at and the reality of the world today and what is possible. 
You get this dream. You get this idea. Your heart lights up with excitement. This is the night where you get the vision and you're up all night. You're not tired at all. And you stay up writing out systems and plans. And you're just so excited because you're like, I can see the new future. It's such a reality. It's going to take a lot of work. Yeah, maybe a few miracles along the way, but it's possible. I can see it, and you come alive. There's thunder, and there's lightning, and it's just an emotional experience. You're excited. Has anyone had a mountaintop experience, or am I just me? (laughs) Then after you leave the mountaintop, you go to the next stage. You go to the valley. You come off the mountaintop, and you begin to make your journey to that new future you saw way down on the horizon. And you spend the longest time in the valley. This is the day-to-day monotonous season where it's like, it's okay. I'm definitely not feeling what I felt on the mountain, but I still believe it's possible. I still know what the Lord spoke to me, and I'm just day by day. I'm doing the practicals. I'm just walking it out, the mundane, the monotonous, where you're just waiting for things to mature. You're just waiting for things, and it's like, ah, I just kind of want to, like, stay in the camp today. I just set it up last night. Now I got to break it down this morning and walk again and then set it up tonight. It's just grind it out. It's the grit stage. Anyone know what that's like? But you, you still have a good spirit within you. You still see it. It's possible. It's reachable. I know where I'm headed. We're good. It's just not fun. And then you leave this stage and inevitably along the way between the mountaintop and the new reality, somewhere along the valley, you come to this stage called the wilderness. And every vision, and thus visionary, will be tested with a wilderness stage. Now, the way you identify a wilderness stage, wilderness stage is a little more dry. It's a little more weary. Wilderness stage can be a bit painful. The wilderness stage is when it looks like your vision has t- taken a complete U-turn and it's actually not possible anymore. Maybe a life circumstance. Something, something is thrown in your life and everything, all your hopes are gone. It's not possible now. Something catastrophic happens and you begin to doubt the vision you had on the mountaintop. See, in the valley, you never doubt it, the vision. But in the wilderness, you begin to doubt that God ever spoke to you in the first place. Maybe that was just me. Maybe that was just a, a good idea, not a God idea. Because, well, if God gave me that vision, what? This, what? How is that possible? And the wilderness actually can get so bad that you don't just begin to doubt God gave you this vision, but you could actually get to the place where you begin to doubt if this God exists at all. Wilderness is quite a bitter place. Now, from the wilderness, you'll go one of two places, usually not both. First place you could go is the camp. From the wilderness, you could decide, I'm going to set up camp here, and the vision and the visionary will live out the rest of its days and, and never, never achieve fulfillment of purpose. You'll never experience the great taste of contentment in life. This is where, inevitably, every carnal vision will wind up. Why is that? Because carnal visions are infinite while human beings are finite. What does that mean? The thirst of a carnal vision is never satisfied. That's why as soon as you achieve that goal, there's a new one right behind it. You got to keep climbing. There's no contentment in a carnal vision. At what point do you have fulfillment of purpose? I've achieved it. I've done more than what I saw on the mountaintop. I'm, I'm, 
I'm experiencing something that's so far beyond what I had set out to see, and I want more. I have a new goal. Let's keep going, baby. Let's climb out higher. There's no rest. There's no fulfillment. There's no contentment. You can't settle down and just relax because there's a need to climb the ladder. And inevitably, while you may reach one vision you saw at one time on the mountaintop, you'll go out and set for yourself a new vision. And inevitably, because this infinite hunger for more and more and more keeps you going, you'll enter another valley, you'll enter another wilderness, and eventually you and flesh are going to die somewhere along the line. So you can go and you can set up in the camp. Or kingdom visions... They enter this place called the promised land. And the distinction between the promised land and the camp is that there's no need for a new vision. Why? Because you're experiencing fulfillment of purpose. You're experiencing contentment, and you can live off the fruit of the land. Not only can you live off the fruit of the land, but your children can live off the fruit of the land, and it's generational. You can rest. This is the place where what you saw on the mountaintop and reality have collided. So you have the promised land. Today, I want to spend the next few moments zeroing in on those of you who may be or may enter into that wilderness stage. I think that's a very prevalent stage that many times, I think if we're honest, we're unprepared for. But before I jump into that, do those two layers of foundation make a little sense? The purpose was not to dive into deep, deep teaching on those, but just to give you a general overview. But I, I really want to make sure I don't need to clarify anything before moving on because it's imperative. We're good? Understand the visions and the stages. Okay. Luke chapter 2. Sorry, Luke 1. We're going to read a couple things here, beginning in verse 76 in just a moment. But first, I want to give you some context. We have this guy named Zechariah, his wife named Elizabeth. Zechariah, one day, both, both of them you need to know are very, very old people, past, well past the years of childbearing. Zechariah, one day, an angel shows up to him and says, hey, you and your, your wife are going to have a baby. Uh, Zechariah, as any rational human being, would um, laugh, doubt, whatever. Um, and so... As a result, Zechariah became a mute. He became a mute. We don't know how long, but we do know eventually Elizabeth got pregnant, as the angel said. Nine months pass, and the baby is born. And in this day and age, it's a really weird thing we, we can't grasp, but the time would come to name the baby and to circumcise the baby. And it's great. Today, we have a lot of privacy. We do it in a hospital room and all this stuff. Well, not back then. No, no, no. Back then, they did it as, a, as like a village. Like everyone was there to witness um, this, this procedure, and they gathered to name the baby, at least in this story. And so the crowd wanted to name the baby Zachariah, right? So in this day and age, the, the lineage is a really big thing, and, and the best way to keep track of all that is through names. And Elizabeth objected to that. She said, no, no, no. Um, his name's going to be John. The crowd wasn't really happy about that. So they said, let's give Zechariah a tablet. Zechariah, write down on the tablet what the name of the kid's going to be. Right? 
So Zechariah, um, yeah, Zechariah, he writes, John, John's going to be the kid's name. And immediately the Bible says that he could begin to speak again. This dude hasn't spoken for at least nine months. And we are about to read some of the first words out of his mouth. Are you ready for this? We're going to start at verse 76, though it actually begins at verse 68. Because 76 is actually the first words out of his mouth. He's speaking over his son's life. And this is what he says. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to make ready his ways. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Now, I don't know if you're catching this. But the entire city is witnessing Zechariah talk for the first time in nine plus months. And one of the first things that comes out of his mouth is that you, son, are going to fulfill the foretold prophecies of Isaiah. You got to imagine, this is, this is a, a people who for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years have been looking for this Messiah. This idea of Messiah and Isaiah's prophecies is, I'm going to send one to prepare the way in the wilderness. This has been their obsession culturally. This is all they care about, all they're looking for. And all of a sudden, we have an overambitious father who feels the need to say about his own son, you are going to be the one to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah that our people and our family have been looking for for hundreds of years. How convenient, right? What a vision, Zechariah, and now the entire community has over John's life. The expectations and the hopes of what they thought it must look like and all these prophecies, what, what they had thought, this is what all this is going to look like. Placed upon John in his first few weeks of age. What if Zachariah is wrong? What if he just really loves his kid like any other parent who wants the best for their kid and their kid to grow up and fulfill something and be something special and their name to be remembered and all of this stuff? What if he's wrong? He's just placed his son under a massive target in that community. Watch what happens down in verse 80. This is incredibly important. And the child continued to grow, to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the desolate regions, the wilderness, to the day of his public appearance to Israel. Watch this. And the child continued to grow. The child grew up. This is the valley. We know John didn't begin to display any signs of fulfilling any sorts of prophecy to at least 25, 30 probably years old. So for 25 to 30 years, we're in the valley. Zachariah is watching his son for 25 to 30 years. How many of you have children? A good handful. How many of you specifically have sons? Okay. I have a a daughter, and a son. And let me tell you something about boys. 
we're weird. <laughs> Have you ever watched a boy grow up, like, through the adolescent years? We're weird. Now I really understand why God said it's really not good for man to be alone. <laughs> we, need, we, we need to create this thing called woman to iron this thing out. So you're just watching this adolescent young boy grow up, and you're thinking, what was God thinking? Right? Zachariah must have had the same experience. He's watching his little boy grow up and pick his nose and, and jump, do backflips off of donkey carts, and he's just sitting here thinking, yep, I can see it now. You are the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. I can, it, there's so much evidence. For 25 to 30 years, this must have been Zachariah's reality where he's saying, well, it's still a possibility, barely, but it's still a possibility, and we're just going to keep taking it day by day. But what's interesting to me, though, is that we get down here to verse 80. The second part of that, where it says, he lived in the desolate regions, the home of choice for John the Baptist. Now, could you imagine Zechariah, he's already an old man when John's born. Could you imagine Zechariah? Perhaps the last time he sees his son is when he's throwing on his bougie caramel hair shirt and Gucci leather belt and running off to live a homeless lifestyle in the wilderness. What do you do? We all have hopes and dreams for our children, desires. What do you do when it's possibly the last time you see your kid alive and they're running off to live the opposite lifestyle than what you had hoped and prayed for? You don't know if you'll ever see them again. You're coming old in age. You don't know what will be made of them. They're, they ran and just moved across the world. They live in a lifestyle that is completely opposite to what I ever hoped for, what I had prayed for. This is Zachariah's reality. And so we have John the Baptist running off to live this homeless lifestyle in the wilderness. And, and now I like to think kind of creatively, so bear with me for a moment, but I think we have these two possible perspectives. You know, we have Zachariah's perspective, right, as the parent. He says, I, I may never see my kid again. If he, if, he, if he, in fact, saw John the Baptist run off to the wilderness, what must Zachariah have been feeling? Oh, man, that vision I spoke the day he was being circumcised and named. Look what's come of it. And then Zechariah dies before ever seeing John fulfill the vision. Ooh. But then we might have John the Baptist's perspective. He could go, you know, couple different directions, I guess, but could you imagine before the kid was even born, before he even has the cognitive ability to understand the call on his life, he has been placed under a massive microscope, the entire community watching every waking breath of his life, waiting for him to prepare the way for the foretold Messiah. John, don't you break one of the 600 plus laws because if you do, then you wouldn't be worthy to carry out your calling. We're watching you. John, is he here yet? Is he here yet, John? I mean, the kid's identity must have been wrapped up in what was foretold about him. He had no control over that. He was subjected to a lifestyle. The wait for 25, 30 years, could you imagine living in a community and a society that has expectations for your life that you show no signs of being prepared for? 
He must have been crushed. Must have been heavy. He must not even wanted the calling anymore. Now, I'm sure the other end of the spectrum might have been true, you know, like all the girls. All the girls, you know, like they're in the market getting their veggies. Hey, John, look, John. Oh, it's John. John, will you sign my scroll, you know? So I'm sure John maybe experienced both ends of the spectrum. But John runs off to the wilderness, and I can't imagine. What do you think he was thinking when he ran off? Could have been a couple different things. Maybe he was thinking, I don't even want this calling. I don't even want this vision over my life. I'm going into the wilderness where I don't have to deal with this society, these people with these expectations in me, who I keep letting down or who keep holding my feet to the fire. I can't be a normal human being. I don't even want the calling. Or maybe he's thinking, ha, some calling, some vision my pops had over me. What was he thinking? He's not even, he, man, is he even a high priest? I began to question my own, my own dad's relationship with the Lord. I began to question that. Maybe I should question all of the prophecies. Is the Messiah even a thing? Is he even coming? All the doubt begins to creep in. Or maybe, maybe, maybe John knew something about the wilderness that us in the 21st century Western world often overlook. Maybe John knew that it's only in the wilderness that one can be prepared to carry the weight of their calling. Maybe John, maybe John understood that the wilderness isn't a sign that God isn't with you. But maybe the wilderness is actually a gift. Maybe that wilderness season you're so eager to get out of is preparing you for your calling. It says, John was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearing. You know, the most dangerous thing you could do is short-circuit the wilderness season to get to the public appearing part. I often say, I, don't, I, I really don't believe you're ready for the public appearing part until you've fallen so in love with the hiddenness and unknownness of the wilderness that you're actually begging God not to bring about the public appearing part. You've just fallen so in love with the secret place. You've just fallen so in love with being content with what you have in godliness that you're actually saying, God, I have this feeling that this is where you're taking me, and that's super exciting, but I actually would prefer to stay here now. Because it's in the wilderness that we're refined like gold and fire. It's in the wilderness that we begin to value the things God values, humility. It's in the wilderness that we begin to trust God as our provider. In the wilderness, we learn a lot of things that we're going to need to handle and steward the day that comes for the public appearing part. Are you with me? But I wonder, though, maybe you are like Zechariah. Maybe you are like John. And the day comes when it's, uh, for whatever reason, the vision, the, the ideas you had in your life, the calling, the, the hopes, the dreams, whatever they may be, they become unreachable. They, they have, there's not enough time left in my life. Maybe it's your, your children. They've, there's no hope left. 
And you're like, I just don't think I'm ever going to see. What do you do? Like, do you become offended at God? Do you become upset, bitter? Do you begin to doubt? Because the reason I ask that is super important, how you respond. Because this isn't an uncommon theme in Scripture. This is actually a pattern where people have hopes and dreams, and they actually die before they're realized. We have Zechariah. Never saw John carry out the vision, Zechariah, like boldly prophesied. We have John, who is imprisoned, and he actually sends some of his disciples to Jesus and says, Jesus, hey, are you the dude that we're supposed to be looking for? Because, you know, Messiah, king, overthrow the people about to behead me. Now would be a great time to come in clutch if you're the dude. And he's like, you know, but if you're not, if you're not, uh, that's okay. If you're not the guy, but could we look for the guy because I'm about to die. And Jesus responds to John. He says a lot of amazing things, but at the end of it, this is, this is the words of Jesus, John. Blessed are you, John, if you're not offended by me. John has spent his entire life preparing the way for Jesus, and Jesus is about to let him die. And Jesus says, blessed are you, John, if you're not offended by me. And you never see what's been promised. You see, the wilderness is full of opportunity for blessing because it's full of opportunity to grow offended at God. And each time you choose to trust God over being offended and bitter at God, there's a blessing. It's this moment where you begin to actually trust the word of God that says his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. God, I can't see the full picture that you see. I realize that I've only been given a little piece to the puzzle. And while I don't understand and I don't like the image on the puzzle piece I've been given, I'm trusting you, God, that it's not the full picture and I'm going to lay it down and surrender. patriarchs, the founders of the faith, the ones who first foretold of all these amazing things that the Messiah would come and accomplish. You know, they never saw it. Hebrews eleven thirteen, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. Jesus himself Did you realize he dealt with this? Luke chapter 22, we have the disciples, they're bickering and arguing. They're jockeying for position in the kingdom. Matthew, you're just a sinner tax collector, dude. There's no way you're going to have more authority in the kingdom than me. Peter, dude, you're a smelly fisherman who can't keep his mouth shut. There's no way, dude. You have more authority than me in this kingdom that Jesus is going to set up. They're jockeying for authority and position in this kingdom that Jesus is going to set up. What's amazing to me is that they loved Jesus with all their heart. They were in full-time ministry. They were followers of Jesus, but something was fundamentally wrong. Be careful that you don't exempt the possibility that you need some growth and you need some soil refinement because you love Jesus. 
because you follow Jesus, because you're in full-time ministry. Friends, the closest people to Jesus had some fundamental errors in their life. And in this moment, Jesus is heartbroken. Why is that? Jesus realizes that in the next 72 hours, he's going to be taken away from his disciples, beaten and killed. And he has spent three years, every waking moment with these 12 disciples. They've been watching him eat and sleep and live. And he's, they've been watching him handle conflict. And they've been watching how he handles you know, a, a abuse or, you know, violence or allegations against him or criticism or lies being conjured up about him. They've, they've been watching how this man, Jesus, lives, and they've been listening to him teach about the culture of the kingdom, that the citizens of the kingdom are supposed to actually live by and value. And yet, three years later, Jesus is like, man, these 12 disciples, I actually needed them to look like me and think like me so that when I leave, they can continue living like me and they can actually teach others to live like me and they can actually establish the kingdom as it is in the kingdom in heaven on the earth. And I'm about to die. This was my vision for them. And I'm about to die and leave. They're not going to have me. They're not going to have a teacher. And they, in this moment, could not look anything more unlike me. Jesus is at this moment. He's at this crossroads where it looks like his hopes and his visions for his plan to establish the kingdom on the earth through his disciples. They're jockeying for position. Jesus, what what have you seen Jesus do? You've seen him continually lay down his life for the least of these. And the disciples, no, no, they want to jockey for the most authority in the kingdom. You've seen Jesus live a minimalist lifestyle, full of generosity. He, he had wealth and resources, plenty of donations, but he lived a minimalist lifestyle so that the gospel could go forth and so that others could be provided for. But the disciples jockey for material gain. Jesus, for three years, displayed what it looked like to climb down a ladder and serve humanity and his disciples are stepping on each other's backs to have the highest rung. My question to you is, you have one night left to live. And your vision, your hopes, for any area of your life, are as far away as they could be. How do you spend your last night alive? Here's how Jesus spent his final night. He took a bowl and he took a rag and he sat his disciples down and one by one he began to wash feet. Why? Out of everything Jesus could have done and out of every way Jesus could have responded, man, you can come up. He chooses to wash feet. Jesus could have lit him up with a sermon. Jesus could have been very blunt and frank with him. You've spent every waking moment with me for the last three years. You're rabbi. They were very acquainted with the idea that disciples are supposed to literally become clones of their rabbi. And Jesus could have lit them up and said, you look nothing like me. What is wrong with you? But instead, Jesus chooses to wash feet. Why? 
John 13. Jesus understood something. And Jesus wanted to make a statement without using words. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord. As I hope and pray most of us do in this room. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But if I am, in fact, in your heart, teacher and Lord, and I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash feet, the feet of one another. You're stepping on each other's backs, trying to climb a ladder when you should be washing feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Jesus understood if he could get his disciples from this position here, self-centered, Comfortable. Thinking about them and their desires. See, Jesus wasn't saying wealth is bad. He wasn't saying the authority you want is bad. The influence you want. He's like, those things are great. I hope you have them. The problem is you desire them for you. The problem is you don't want the authority so that you can lay your life down and build your people, you want the authority because of the benefits that come with it. And so Jesus knew, he's like, no, 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 this is the, the condition of their heart. They're in this position here. They're centered on themselves. They're super comfortable right now. Hello, isn't that what we chase in America? I want to live comfortable, comfortable enough to take care of these people, my, you know, my parents or whatever, but I want to be comfortable doing it, right? It's just this self, why don't you just take care of your parents regardless of how comfortable it is? Hey, that's the beauty of sacrifice, right? It's this mindset of the self-centeredness. Like you don't really want to help people. You just want to be comfortable if you're going to help people. And Jesus is saying, I've got to get them out of this position. How do I do it? Let me show them what they got to do. I got to get them to leave this position and get in this position. Because it's only in this position are they actually going to be able to be effective. And it's not until they get in this position where they're uncomfortable. It's not until they get in this position where the world doesn't revolve around them that they begin to wash feet. And now, and now they're in a position to flip something upside down. Hold on, not yet. We're going to get to those. Flip those back up. What Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand, <laughs> we're going to get to those, is that the position of your heart. <laughs> it's okay. We're going to redeem it in just a minute. You ready? <laughs> Hey, can we give it up for Brayden? Such a servant's heart. I love it. For real, it's okay. What Jesus is trying to get you to understand. He's got to move. Look, if you really want a vision for your life, you got to get out of this position. If you really want a vision for your life, if you want a, 
a vision, a kingdom vision? Let me tell you, Jesus' vision is a vision to flip. He wanted to flip lives. He wanted to flip your life. He wanted to flip your family. He wanted to flip your city. He wants to flip your high school. He wants to flip your college. But you're never going to flip anything from this position. So Jesus is saying, get up here. Let me show you. Let's get you in a position to flip. Because when you go home and you begin to serve your wife and speak in a gentler tone, when you go home and you begin to celebrate your kids rather than say, oh, well, that's awesome. You got a B. Let me help you get an A. Let me help you do better. When you just begin to celebrate and rejoice and you begin to love and change the atmosphere of your home. And when you go to your workplace and you begin to wash the feet of your employees and when you go into your school and you begin to wash the feet of those who bully you and mock you and make fun of you, you position yourself to flip lives upside down and you can't do it when you're letting the world revolve around you and you're self-centered and you're too comfortable. You following me? Now you begin to do it. You begin to get the hang of it. You begin to watch the life of your teacher and actually live like your teacher and and listen to his teachings differently. It's not a religious book anymore. It's actually he may know how to live life abundantly. Wow. And then what happens is you go home and your family begins to see a difference in you. What happens is you begin to go to work and your employees say, hey, I'm not here to build a kingdom for him. He's actually here to build a kingdom inside of me. And then what they say is, I want what he's got. And they're not talking about your material wealth. They're not talking about the success or the influence or the honor that you may have. They're actually saying, I want his peace. I want his joy. I want his kindness. I want his generosity. I want how he loves. How do I get it? And then what happens is, is you now, you, you, where you've made an impact, you take someone, you begin to show them, hey, here's how I do it. You get them down. You both begin to wash feet. You teach them how to love. You teach them how to serve. You make a disciple out of them. And all of a sudden, where two or more of you have gathered, Christ is there in the midst. You have the ecclesia, and it's easier to flip something bigger called your city. Come on, church. Come on, church. There has to come a moment in your life where you pray the prayer, God, see if there's any wicked way in me. God, I know I love you. God, I know I follow you. But God, the deepest desires of my heart, is there something I desire for me? Or do I fully desire to glorify the Father and edify your people? Is my life's prayer, God, glorify Christ Jesus, whether in life or in death? Do I have the heart posture of Paul in Acts 20, 24, where he says, I don't consider my life as dear to myself, but so that I may fulfill the purpose of my life. I lay my life down and don't consider anything to gain. Let me read this quote to you as we land the plane. There's only one vision the human heart can cling to. Only one. That the human heart can cling to and passionately pursue. With endurance, its entire life, yet never see it come to pass. And even still, when they come to die, they will remain confident that firstly, the vision will eventually be inherited. And secondly, their heart will be satisfied that they have contributed to the fulfillment of that vision in a way that only he or she could. And that vision 
is one of a world that looks like heaven, full of people that look like Jesus. A vision that humbly lays down its own plans. A vision that humbly lays down its own dreams. A vision that humbly lays down its own desires for the betterment of humanity. Would you stand with me all across the room? When you come to die at your funeral, people are probably not going to spend the majority of their time talking about the business you built. They're probably not going to spend the majority of the time talking about the influence you had or gained. They're probably not going to spend a lot of time talking about your net worth or how many houses you had or cars or the materials you had or didn't have in this life. They're probably not going to talk about all the educational accolades. And I want you to hear my heart here. None of those things are a problem. None of those things in and of themselves are wrong or bad in any way. But what they will talk about at your funeral is how you feared the Lord. What they will talk about at your funeral was that you had the world and lived life with an open hand and we're so willing to give it all away to meet the needs of humanity. What they will talk about is the fruit of the Spirit that was produced in your life. When you had every opportunity to act like any other normal, rational human being and respond in anger and respond in strife or hold a grudge, no, 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 the fruit of the Spirit was evident in their life. What they will talk about it's how you chose not to work 60, 70, 80 hour weeks to build that dream empire in your heart, but you actually came home and had dinner with your family. They will talk about how you valued making disciples in your home. Listen, the only people that will in 20 years remember that you worked late again are your spouse and children. They will talk about the soil of your heart. Listen, friends, the vision of your life, the fruit of your life will always be a reflection of who you are. So my question is, are you like Jesus? What position are you in? Self-comfortable Loving the Lord all at the same time. Chasing the Lord, full-time ministry all at the same time. But what, what, what position are you in? I believe there's people all over the spectrum in this room today. This, this word was for some. This word wasn't relevant to others. 
But I believe that every single person in this room has a charge now to leave and pray the prayer. Holy Spirit, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. God, see if there be any desire, even if it's a good desire, God, I want all my desires to be God desires. I want my heart to be tethered to the heart of the King. I want his desires to be my desires. God, I want to fear the Lord. I don't even know what that means. God, I, if you've called me to do this, if you've placed these dreams in my heart to serve you, that's fine. I'll chase them. But I, at the end of the day, don't care if I ever see them. God, I just want in my body or in my death that the Father be glorified through my life. And what I want to do is I want to take a moment just as we close to give you a chance to respond. I want to give you a chance just between you and the Lord. Scott, I feel like I'm in a wilderness season. God, I've been doubting you. God, speak to me now. Are you real? Did you give me this? God, you said you never leave me or forsake me. God, what is the vision you have for my life? Am I running in the right direction? Is my heart tethered to you? Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to check us out on thevoyage.church to stay updated on everything God is doing in our city.